Good morning. Oh man, you are my favorite person, whoever you are back there. It is so good to see you all. Uh, my name is Kondo, for those of you I don't know. And again, a special welcome to those who may be guests uh, with us this morning. You found us in the third week of a series uh, that we are calling Storytime. And uh, if you've been here in the previous weeks, then you know that this in so many ways is inspired, a lot, well, at least in a little uh, way, by my upbringing. I was brought up as uh, the pastor of a son, uh, son of a pastor, pastor of a son, that's my son now, but um, my mom loved to read us some of the ancient old uh, Bible stories uh, when we were kids, and um, so we grew super familiar with them, and uh, we would be transported into these old stories, into these old scenes, into these old uh, sites when we were growing up, and um, as I've gotten older and I've reflected back on growing up listening to those stories, I've found that the older I've gotten, the more I've appreciated the fact that my mom taught us those Old Testament classics, and what I've realized is the older I've got, the more rich and relevant those old stories have seemed to become. And uh, so for the last number of weeks, um, we've been kind of walking through some of these old stories. And uh, what we've been trusting is that as we look at these Old Testament classics, we'll find them to be more rich and more relevant than we could possibly have Imagined, And more importantly, we'll find that in every single one of these stories, there is a central theme. And as we've seen, there is a central hero in all of these stories, which prepares us so beautifully for Easter next weekend. This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at um, a really well-known story. It's a story about a guy named Daniel um, and that one night when he, he slumber partied with uh, a, a few lions in the lion's den. Uh, a classic. Um, and we want to get to know this guy named Daniel because I believe that as we look back into that story, we are going to find ourselves challenged. We're going to find ourselves learning some powerful lessons if we are willing to listen. Daniel and the lion's den. Um, if you have a copy of the scriptures, join me um, in Daniel chapter 6. We're going to be in the Old Testament of uh, book of Daniel and the 6th chapter, Daniel chapter 6. And even as you turn there, let me just again give you a little bit of backstory to catch us up uh, to where we're going to be jumping in. So, once upon a time, in about the year 600 BC, uh, under the leadership of a king named Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonian Empire, the single most dominant, powerful empire at the time, invaded the nation of Israel. It plundered Israel's treasure, and more importantly, it forcibly captured some of its men and dragged them into slavery in the empire of Babylon. Now, in a super brilliant power move, um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, instituted a reprogramming program. And in this program, he said to his people, I want you to find me the best of the best. I want you to find me the most brilliant, the most beautiful, and the brightest of the slaves we captured. And in fact, I want you to, to get me those with royal blood or royal connections. And I want you to reprogram them. In other words, I want you to convert them into Babylonians. I want you to teach them our language, teach them our customs, teach them our culture. And when you've done that, I want you to bring them to me. 
So after this stringent, strenuous process is done, the cream of the crop, the best of the best, are brought before King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar personally interviews all of them. And when he's done interviewing the best of the best, he finds that out of the best of the best rises four who far tower above the others. Four guys, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and this guy, Daniel. So he dismisses the rest of them and he brings these four guys into the palace to work for him. And it doesn't take long in spending time with these four brilliant guys to realize that as brilliant as the three other guys are, they cannot hold a candle to Daniel. One of the things Nebuchadnezzar says about these four guys is that they were 10 times more brilliant and 10 times more beautiful than the best of his best advisors. And the more time he spends with these four, he realizes that Daniel towers above them all. And so he eventually promotes Daniel. Daniel says, please, can I bring these three guys along with me? He says, sure, as long as you pull rank on them, which is what happens. So by the time we meet Daniel, Daniel is twice as impressive as three other guys who are 10 times as impressive as the most impressive men in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. By the time we get to chapter 6, Nebuchadnezzar has died. His son has ruled for a little while. And now a guy named Darius is in power. He's the new most powerful man on the planet. It doesn't take him long to discover what his predecessors had discovered about Daniel. Uh, So look what happens um, in this discovery process in chapter 6, verse 1. Here's what it says. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three three administrators over those satraps. One of those administrators was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. So the most powerful man on the planet who wanted to be surrounded by nothing short of the best and the most brilliant people chooses 120 people uh, uh, to surround him. And out of those 123 rise to the surface, one of those three was Daniel. But here we go again, because out of the 123, there were three. And then out of the three, Daniel rose Again, look at verse 3. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And I think as we start to get to know this character named Daniel a little bit, he has something to teach us about the dying art of excellence. Excellence. Because it didn't seem to matter which king or which context, Daniel rose to the surface and beyond. It says in this passage that he was exceptional. Uh, Another version says he had about him the spirit of excellence. Um, Excellence um, in this context, the word exceptional excellence is the idea of exceeding expectations. To go beyond the expected standard And every generation 
has a remnant of these kinds of people, men and women, a small minority of the exceptional, a movement of people who refuse to carry out their responsibilities with anything less than excellent. They, they consider the standard, the acceptable standard, the expected standard to be the starting place, not the finish line. There is in every generation a remnant of those people who work painstakingly to master their craft and what they end up doing is redefining the standard. I mean, I'm talking about the stiff curries of our world. This kid who insists on making 500 three-point shots in the offseason every single day. I know I marvel at the fact that he made 400 three-pointers in a single basketball season, but what I forget is he is painstakingly mastering the craft of excellence, shooting all of those shots. It is the Peyton Mannings of our world who obsess over hours and hours of game film, reviewing what he did and what everyone else did so he can be a little bit better next time, all before the rest of the team even shows up to the practice. Facility. We're talking about but people like, like Bill Gates who refuses to do two things at the same time so that he can focus on mastering whatever it is he is doing. Excellence. And we see this in Daniel. I mean, think about this. How excellent do you have to be for the king of the enemy nation that considers himself superior to you, the king who has enslaved you, to be reaching out to you and considering putting you in charge of the very kingdom that captured you. How excellent would you have to be in what you do to make it to that level? Daniel was constantly exceeding the expected Standard, And I, I think we can learn something from him. And, and I do. I, I think sometimes we in the church miss how much the great men and women of Scripture have to teach us about the art of excellence. And one of the reasons is because we're so distracted by their godliness. Why did you just say that? Yeah, I, I did say that. And I think what we miss is that their godliness calls out of them excellence. King David won war after war after war because he was obsessing over game tape and strategizing and figuring out how to do what he did, killing a bunch of people with excellence. Noah, that guy managed to build a boat that withstood the single greatest tsunami ever. That had to have been some excellent construction. Joseph, that guy figured out how to put in place a global food bank, a system in which he was able to preserve the lives of millions around the world. Excellence. And I think sometimes we miss that. There was nothing about the men and women of God in the Bible that were content to just do enough. And I wonder if Daniel wouldn't be a little bit confused by how the church so often lives like you have to choose between godliness or excellence. I love that Daniel and his friends were both 
the most godly and the most excellent people in the world, mind you. I love that. Because I think you know as well as I do that what our culture could really stand to see is an excellent church. Men and women, boys and girls who are godly and really, really good at what they do. Not one or the other. What our culture could really use is a church flooding the marketplace with excellence that is so compelling that companies and corporations insist on giving you greater and greater responsibilities and places of influence because wherever you show up, they get better. Excellence. What the church needs to be growing in is being godliest and the most excellent. Students, leaders, engineers, yeah, pray for your coworkers. Um, yeah, do Bible study with your coworkers. Hopefully, like during your lunch break um, would be preferable. But how amazing would it be if you also push the standard on precision and you push the standard on productivity? Yeah, be polite to your teachers, but how amazing if as students you were also pushing the standard of academic excellence and working hard. How amazing would that be? Excellence. How amazing would it be if you weren't just that? Because there's too many stories of that Christian kid on that sports team who is such an encourager. Like, oh my goodness, team spirit, you are so awesome. We love having you in the locker room and you're such an encouragement from the bench. I'm like, that's great, but can you play some defense though? Can you actually master the craft of the sport so you make your team better? So you're not just a glorified mascot who goes along to encourage if your job is to actually be a contributing part of the team. Daniel so distinguished himself that a pagan king was fixing to turn over the keys of his kingdom to him. Now, please don't say I didn't warn you that um, excellence is great, but nothing will draw the haters out of hiding faster than excellence. If you opt for excellence, you will make the world around you better, and you will make Jesus seem more appealing, and you make yourself a target. People love excellence as much as they hate excellent people. Excellence is a threatening thing. It really, really is. That's why people hate Tom Brady. Um, but I'm working on it. Pray for me. Um, besides deflating certain, you know, key items uh, for the game, this guy just beats up your team most of the time he faces them. Hard to like a guy like that. He's really good at what he does, and I cannot believe I just said that in public. Um, that's why people hate Steph Curry with his baby face. That's why he's growing a beard, you know, but he's still doing the same thing. He's beating your team. There's something about excellence. 
That's why I know and I hate all the excellent preachers. I know who they are, jerks. Because I get home <laughs> on a Sunday and I make the mistake of going on social media around lunchtime and I see some of your posts, you know, heard an awesome message this morning. I'm like, oh, that is so sweet of you. And then you quote some other preacher. I'm like, wait a minute, I saw you at church. I know you were there. Which means either you listen to this sermon on your way home or while I was preaching. So I know who these people are. I hate them. So does God. We know that. Because they are a total threat. There's something about your excellence at work which is going to stir some hateration from some of the people around you. Watch how this runs um, into Daniel's world. Verse 4. At this, at the rumors that the king was about to put Daniel in charge, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, in his job. But they were unable to do so. They could not find corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, eh, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. And even in their quest to try and find fault in Daniel, we learn another lesson from him about integrity. Integrity. He's not just a man of excellence. He's a man of integrity. The, the idea of integrity, uses the word trustworthy in this context, is the idea of living verifiably. And I'll explain that um, here in a second. It's the idea of living verifiably. Um, Man, a number of years back, my wife and I got a membership to Costco, um, and uh, just it's Disney Disney World for adults. And um, Costco is this massive, you know, wholesale warehouse store um, that requires a membership. And the way it works is when you walk up to the store, there's somebody standing there at the entrance, and they'll ask to see your ID, your, your membership card. And so you show them your membership card, and then you go in and you start to shop. Now, re really, I did it because of the free samples. There are some of the most delectable edible samples in there. You can make a meal out of it if you time it right, you know. Um, so anyway, um, you go in and you start to do all your shopping. When you're done shopping, you go to check out. And when you check out, they're going to verify again your membership. But the most fascinating part of the whole process for me is when you are actually exiting the store. I mean, so at this point, you have a cart full of stuff and people are like, whoa, look at you. You're important. Um, you have some really, really cool stuff and, and, and people uh, to feed. And you carry this cart towards the exit. And if you time it wrong, you could be stuck in a line of traffic for a solid 10 minutes. Because when you get to the exit, there is somebody standing at the exit and what they're doing is they are looking at your cart and they are comparing it line by line to the items on that receipt. 
to make sure that is what's in that impressive card of yours matches what's on the receipt. To make sure that what you say is yours is really paid for and does actually belong to you. And they will go down the list. There was one time we got sent back, and I honestly cannot remember what my wife stole, uh, because that's not really the point of the story. The point of the story is we're looking for a new membership to a new... No, that's really not the point of the story. Um, that is such a picture of the word that's being used when it speaks of Daniel being trustworthy. He, he lives in a verifiable way integrity. It's a terrifying word because it means that the things I claim to be and the things I want you to believe that I believe match what I really am like, match the way I really live. That you can verify the authenticity of my claims by my life. There is no discrepancy. There is no duplicity. These two realities match. I really am what I appear and claim to be. This is a scary word. A word I don't often like because I know how much it calls out my hypocrisy. I know how much it calls out my discrepancies. The places where I'd really rather you were impressed by the cart and all the people and the homeless people we must be feeding with all of this. Without paying attention to, is this really who you are though? Does this really match what's behind the veil, what's behind the scenes. These haters tapped Daniel's phones. They got a hold of his email server, a copy of his tax returns, installed cameras in his office, and they found nothing. No duplicity, no discrepancy. What Daniel claimed was what Daniel was. What Daniel appeared to be was what Daniel really was like. Even as I prepared um, this message, I had to confess my own duplicity. And I had to beg God to make me more like this character named Daniel. Because I know the ways I am more impressive than I am authentic. Uh, I know the ways. I have an impressive shopping cart that doesn't match my heart. And I so wanted to skip this point. How about you? Is there an area of your life you live in fear of being found out by your spouse or by your roommate or by your kids because if they stopped you and they checked or if they walked into a certain situation and they checked does what your boss think you're doing at your desk match what you're really doing at your desk 
Or are you constantly looking over your shoulder to make sure you can quickly, you know, split screen the situation so it's back on the spreadsheet when he walks in? Are you duplicitous or are you what you say? Does what your parents think you are doing on Snapchat match what you are actually doing? Does what your friend think you think about them match what you say about them when they're not there? Or would they be shocked to hear how you really speak about them behind the scenes, behind the veil? Does your spirituality here on a Sunday morning match your sobriety last night? If you knew there was a group of haters who were looking for reason to discredit you, how easy would you sleep? This is such a, a powerful and daunting and intimidating uh, word, integrity. Every generation is a small remnant of these men and women who live lives verified. Nothing to hide. No duplicity. And I wonder if somebody didn't come to church this morning to hear from the Lord and learn from Daniel in this particular regard. I know this has been wrecking my life as I've been prepping for this. I wonder if you didn't come to church this morning, maybe to hear God invite you out of the duplicity, out of the exhausting world of holding two worlds apart. Into the freedom of being what you appear. And I praise God for his Holy Spirit who is so invested in making us people of integrity if we would just own and acknowledge the ways in which that needs to be true. Daniel's excellence is backed by his integrity. People couldn't find any reason to discredit him. Not even a hint to build on. Lord, would you make us people like that? So these haters, they get so exhausted, so frustrated that they failed endeavor uh, to incriminate Daniel. Um, just, yeah, fell through. So they moved to plan B. And these guys are brilliant. If there was any doubt that they are the smartest people on the planet, they weave this beautiful um, trap um, around the king and manage to tie his hands. Look at verse 6 said, so these administrators and, you know, trap setters, or sorry, say traps, um, went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, uh, say traps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except you, your majesty shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Brilliant. Just brilliant. 
I mean, these guys spike the king's drink. They intoxicate the king with a concoction of his own vanity and pride. They put a mirror in front of him, and the guy is just absolutely seduced into this stupor. He's hypnotized by his own glory, by his own image. Notice, he doesn't even pause to ask, like, wait a minute, why am I signing this executive order? Why am I signing this decree? Because all he hears is, you are the greatest and we shouldn't pray to anybody except you. No one should be as adored as you. You are the guy. And he says, where do I sign? So this irreversible law goes into effect, making it a capital offense, punishable by death to anyone who prays to anyone except Darius for a month. Pray to somebody who's not Darius, and you spend a night in the cave with some untamed lion. So, word gets back to Daniel, because obviously he was etched out of this particular meeting somehow. And he hears about the rule, and being the most brilliant man on earth, he reasons to himself, well, anyone can do anything for 30 days. That's not what Daniel does. If I'm his friend, that's the direction I would advise him. But that's not what Daniel does. Look at verse 10. It says, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open towards Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed. Giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. What? I just want to confess, even as I long to take steps towards integrity, let me just confess and say, this is not what I would have done. No chance. I would have said, you know what? Let things kind of cool down a little bit. Let them blow over and then I'll get back to praying. If I was one of Daniel's advisors, one of Daniel's counsels, I would say, hey, listen, get back to praying in a week. And when you get back to praying for the love of everything living, close the windows. You don't need to let anybody see that. And pray standing with your eyes open and cover your mouth. But nope, Daniel goes back to praying just like he had before which raises the important question. Could Daniel possibly be as smart as the Bible says he is? Because this doesn't make sense. This doesn't seem smart to me. And even in this choice, I think we learned something about devotion from Daniel. Devotion. The idea of devotion is the idea of committing completely. It's the idea of committing completely. And it's amazing the things I value and treasure about these men and women of the scriptures in the Old Testament as I reread these stories. Why would Daniel knowingly risk death? It's simple. For him, it was because of 
his devotion. He was a devoted follower of God. And in his economy, that's what devotion looks like. So when he heard that there was a a high probability that he would be tossed into a den with ferocious lions if he continued to pray, he most likely thought, man, that really chafes. But I've got to do what I've got to do because he was devoted to his God. Here's the thing that has struck me as I've read and reread this story. And as I've been shocked and shocked afresh by Daniel's response to this decree, to this edict. And I think what's occurred to me is that sadly, many, if not most of us in this room, have been sold and maybe even perhaps have bought into an a la carte version of following God. We've bought into a version of following God that is a pick and choose version. It is pick your favorite three and choose your own adventure. It's a version of following God that asks, what what do you prefer? How much do you want to do for God? How much are you willing to invest for him? And what's your safe word in case things get really dicey and super uncomfortable for you and you want out? This version of following God asks, how far do you want to follow God? And into what kinds of places and adventures are you willing to follow him? Because if it stops feeling convenient, and if it starts to get a little too costly, or too uncomfortable. Well, you know what? Just wait till things cool down and you can pick up the trail later and keep following him. The problem for Daniel was that he didn't have the luxury of ever hearing this a la carte version of following his God. Daniel was only acquainted with one version of following God. And in that version, it is God above all and me all in. The end, devotion. This is all he knew. When he chose to follow God, it wasn't about options and percentages and exit clauses. He understood it was an all-in proposition and it could very well cost him all. So when he hears the king's decree, my guess is he is scared. My guess is he's probably even disappointed. But he's in no way derailed from being all in. And no way is God dethroned from being above all else. Devotion. And just to be clear, Daniel doesn't, oh, oh, so I can't pray. I'll show you I can't pray. He's not doing this out of defiance. He's not doing it to be difficult for the sake of being different. He's doing this out of devotion, out of his dependence on his God. And so when the king commands him to do something different than the king of kings commands him, he's already made his decision which way he's going on that. And he chooses devotion. God above all. It's not even a question at that point what he's going to do. 
when the consequences get dark, he is still all in. That is devotion. And can we all agree, Daniel is not dumb. He is fully aware that he is giving up the single most coveted and most lucrative promotion in the entire world. To be second in charge, that's a nice gig. He knows by choosing devotion and to pray, he is relinquishing that option. He knows fully well he's risking his own life. But God overall and me all in, this is devotion. Every generation has a small and decreasing remnant, it seems, of people who have bought into this version of following God. I am all in God and you are above all. If anything ever competes or conflicts with what you say I do, I will count the cost and I will keep following you. Daniel prays because that's what God calls his followers to do. And in that particular context, Daniel's commitment to prayer was not just about whispers. They prayed very audibly. That's how prayer happened. And they prayed with a posture, which means his kneeling was part of his prayer practice. So he was not going to shift the way he prayed because it was going to be costly to him. Devotion. Our generation is blessed to have a remnant of men and women devoted like this. And all you have to do is read the voice of the martyrs stories. I was reading some just last night. Our brothers and sisters in Sudan or in China. Who even today counting the great cost of prison or death or separation from their families are all in devoted to God. And heaven is applauding this remnant, this movement of people who've bought into this version of following their God. And this world is forever changed and the miracles of heaven come in tow of this kind of devotion. You want to see a world revolutionized. You want to see yourself encountering sightings of a living God. You've got to be in on this devotion thing. I wonder if there are some truly devoted among us. I wonder if in this room this morning there is a remnant of men and women, boys and girls, who would say God above all and all in. And the reason I wonder that is because church, like we saw two weeks ago, that is the only version of following God Jesus offers. There actually is no other version. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have got to deny yourself, die to yourself. You've got to count the cost, take up your cross, and then follow me. That's the only way you go with me. Which means no matter what happens, no matter what the risk, no matter what the cost, you are devoted and we go together. If your copy of the contract of following God is one that has exit clauses or one that has convenience contingencies, if it's one that's about percentages or it's one in which you have days of the week for him and days of the week for yourself, you have bought a counterfeit copy. And I know I've so often bought into a counterfeit copy of following God. If you can pick and choose when and how much, That is not the offer Jesus 
made. And the fact that I am shocked when I read a story of somebody who would dare to follow God at great cost tells you how far we've fallen. So, if you knew she'd break up with you, if you continued to pray, would you? I mean, if you knew that that promotion would slip through your hands, would you still raise those hands in prayer? If you knew the kids in the cafeteria would burst out laughing at you, would you still do what God said? Um, I wish I could overemphasize how important this point is. And if you've been around Mission Point, you hear us making this point over and over again. There is a reason for that. We have the luxury, it just is so daunting to me that we have the luxury of sitting in our cushy seats and listening to a story about a guy who was devoted at great cost. We have the luxury of sitting in this comfortable room and asking the question, would we be devoted if that was asked of us? This church is a privilege with a time limit on it because I am convinced the time is coming when we are going to have to answer that question. Not in theory, but in reality. And we are starting to inch into those times. Right now the church is intolerant. That's the first step. If you were to be considered a political dissenter because of what you believe, and what you practiced in following God, would you still follow him? I'm telling you, the time is coming where this will no longer be a theory. And the Bible predicts in the last days, that's going to start to happen. The time is coming where we won't have the luxury of reading these stories about men and women and brothers and sisters on the other side of the world. We are going to have to answer and settle this question for ourselves. And there is no better time than in the peace times we're experiencing now to settle this matter. Is this the version of following God we've bought into? Uh, we bought into a lesser version in which we pull the ripcord when things get tough. This is a question we're going to have to answer. And Daniel is teaching us something. Devotion. Have you bought in to an all-in, God above all, I will follow you anywhere? It's the only version Jesus offers. And church, it is the only version that will survive when the heat gets turned up. This is such a key thing I believe the Lord wants us to see and to settle. And God, would you make us the movement of people who are devoted? And then this is where the lions come in. You really thought like this was a story about Daniel and the lions. Now we've titled it that. But you're going to see how anticlimactic this scene is as we wrap. Verse 11, let's read what happens. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying, of course, asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except you, your majesty suck-ups, would be thrown into the lion's den? 
The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of those slaves, those exiles from Judah, who you wanted to promote apparently, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard of this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. I love that. He's not angry. He's sad. And he experiences regret. Verse 15. Then the men went as a group to the king and said to him, Remember, your majesty, can we please pull the trigger already, throw this guy in? According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order reluctantly. And they brought Daniel, threw him into the lion's den. And by the way, I love the fact that Daniel, there's no, you know, Tommy Lee Jones, there's no Harrison Ford in this story. Daniel is not a fugitive, is not making a run for the border. He willingly submits. He has counted the cost and it's time. And so he surrenders himself. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, please rescue you. And then he gives the dreaded order. Verse 17 A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. The rock and the seal were pictures of finality. This was a picture of the end of all known Options. There is no legal recourse. This cannot be changed. Daniel is in the pit. No physical alternatives. Daniel is in the pit. He cannot get out. This was a done deal. This was a, the epitome of a no way out situation. But how many of you know that no way out is God's favorite way in? Look at verse 18. Then the king returned to the palace. And spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. Now, again, I don't know if anyone else finds it a little bit disappointing how this show is directed. I don't want to criticize the director of this particular story. But listen, if, if, if Eli Manning is throwing a high ball into the end zone with no time on the clock and Odell Beckham is sprawled out ready to catch that thing, I don't want to see a kid eating popcorn in the stands. I don't want to see what's happening in the end zone. If Joanna Gaines is about to make her major fixer-upper reveal, I don't want to be panned to the neighbors who are mowing their lawn. I don't care about that. I want to see shiplap, right? (laughs) But apparently, that's not how the director played this one. Because here, Daniel's in the most intense moment of the movie, and what do the Bible directors choose to do? They pan away from the pit, and they take us to the palace. Darius couldn't sleep. He didn't have entertainment. He wasn't eating. I'm like, why are we talking about Darius? There's a guy in the pit. Take us to where the action is. Verse 19. The first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? What a ridiculous question. And Daniel responds, come on, man, it's early. 
Um, No, he says, may the king live forever. Verse 22, my God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. And in this epic scene that we try to wrap our minds around this as little kids growing up, God saves Daniel from the lions. This is miraculous because, you know, you know, rock beats scissors and the lions crush homo sapiens in most situations, except God. God just vetoes this irreversible legal obstacle and he just changes this irrevocable physical, you know, situation. He just completely repeals the laws of the nation, the laws of nature. And I love how anticlimactic this miracle is. And I'm obviously joking about the directing of this show. You know, God, I'm just kidding. But um, not a moment is spent in this cave. The moment is spent in the palace with the king. This is almost as though God is saying, are you kidding me? The only drama and tension that night was in the palace. We had the pit situation so handled. It's almost God's way of saying, that was easy for me. There was nothing challenging going on in the pit. I take care of my business. The only tension was in the guy who doesn't know me trying to figure out what's going to happen. That's where the restlessness was. God shut the mouths of the lions. The end. This is not hard for him. The pit situation was taken care of. I think what this story reminds us is whatever your impossible pit is, whatever dark situation you might happen to be in, whatever lions threaten to crush your world, God can rescue without breaking so much as a sweat. It is easy for him to rescue his people out of the pit. That is easy for God. I wonder if that's why he doesn't spend so much time talking about how he did it and and what else happened. I think this story also teaches us not just that God can rescue with ease. I think it teaches us that that God will be close when we're in those pits. It says he sent an angel. Some people, like myself, believe this was a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus himself. He shows up a few times in the Old Testament. I wonder if what we are to see in this story is that God may or may not break me out of that pit, but he will always break into the darkest pits and the places in which I lie. That your no way out situation is always God's way in. Which means if you're still in an impossible pit, an impossible painful situation, one thing you can know for sure is God is in that place and in that pit with you. He may or may not rescue you. He may or may not break you out. But he can. What he always will do is break in to be with you. I love what Daniel says. An angel showed up and shut the mouth of the lions. I love the story in Daniel 3 where the three guys are thrown into the fiery furnace. 
God may or may not pull us out. We don't know, but we know that he will be with us in essence. And some of us need to hear that this morning because we've been watching the exit and we've been waiting for rescue and God can but if he hasn't yet it is an assurance to you that he has broken in and do not miss his presence with you even in that place even in that pit and again I don't know what impossible situation that you may or may not be in what I do know from this story is God can easily break you out, but he will always get himself in. Here's the question, and this is a question I've struggled with. When I realize that God is in the midst of my most painful and impossible situations, when I realize I want my Haitian daughters to be home, but the fact that they're not means he is. He, he's here. The question is, will his closeness and his presence be enough? Your debt is not yet paid, and that's an impossible situation. But he is with you. He promises that. The question for the church is, will that be enough? If he doesn't rescue, he can, but if he doesn't, is that still enough? Because ultimately, this story is about Jesus. The one who was exiled from heaven, the one of royal blood who came down to earth and he had to learn a culture and customs and a language he did not experientially know. So it's about Jesus who fully understands that if he was going to obey God, if he was going to go all in with God and embrace humanity, it was going to cost him his life. This was about Jesus' integrity who, who did not do anything wrong, but because of the haters, they fabricated some charges against him and they sent him to his death. This story is in so many ways about Jesus who was put in the pit with a rock, a stone rolled over it as he spent a couple of nights with a lion of death. This is a story how two days later, early in the morning, without so much as breaking a sweat, he emerged victorious and now he is in charge of the entire universe. But his story is a reminder that he has no problem getting into the caves and into the pit with us. And our reigning king is the one who sits with us in those painful places. The question is, is that enough? And church, I ask this question with such trepidation because I understand once again, his presence is going to have to be enough for some of us in some of the painful situations we're in and some of the painful situations that may be coming. That our reigning king who shuts the mouths of lions is always in the pit with his people. And so Jesus, we pray that you would stir in us a desire to be all in, to trust you fully. And Lord, we pray that we would learn to love your presence more than life. That we would learn to love your presence more than rescue because we realize you are the rescue. You saved us to be with you. That's what the whole thing is about. Please do something in our souls miraculously that makes your presence in our situations enough. But I also do pray, Lord, that you would shut the mouths of some lions in this room. I pray, Lord, that you break some of your people out because you can and because you love to rescue. 
So I pray for that financial situation. I pray for that health situation. I pray for that marriage situation that even today you would shut the mouths of those lions and rescue your people from those places. But more than that, help us to love you and love your presence in a way that's willing to go all in no matter what the cost. It's in your name we pray. Amen.